seeking to fit me with cap and gown for commencement services later this spring, a secretary emailed me to request my height and weight. I recorded the figures and then I wrote this in the email. Much shorter and much heavier than I had ever dreamed as a kid. And she wrote back and said, isn't that the truth with us? Even a light-hearted exchange such as this reminds us of the more serious reality that the stories of our lives do not turn out as we expect or as we had hoped they would. As children, we dream big dreams. As young people, our futures are full of great expectations. But our lives do not often meet those expectations. And written onto the pages of our personal histories are many bitter disappointments and heartaches. There is no way on earth that we can change this course. The issue is really how we respond. How do we react? How do we think? How do we interpret a world of broken expectations and dreams and heartaches? The atheist is really left with very little. It's all a meaning of convergence of random events. There is no purpose. There are no certainties. There is no hope. Cruel fate orders our universe. Some Christians jump in at this point and say, no, no, there is a God. And God wants us to focus on our expectations. If we will just live right, God will bless us with the fulfillment of our every desire. We should focus on our expectations because God is a faithful dispenser of all that we want. If we obey and honor Him, He will flood our lives with health and wealth and happy circumstances. And of course, God is the source of our every satisfaction. It just depends on how we interpret that. He Himself is that source of satisfaction. But many Christians make an idol of their expectations, whatever they are. And they make an errand boy of God. A far richer and more satisfying response emerges from the Old Testament book of Ruth. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you will. The message of this book is subtle. The narrator simply tells an elegant story of human suffering and triumph. And even those who are not believers and who do not discern the message of the Spirit of God might find here just simply a very attractive story. But there's a message that's very subtle that lies underneath the surface and is profound. The message of the book, though subtle, is one in this elegant story of human suffering and triumph, one of larger purposes. And as we tap those larger purposes of Ruth, there emerges from its pages vital instructions and moving inspiration for responding to the unfolding stories of our lives. The account opens with a family facing an unexpected crisis. Verse 1 of Ruth 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. 
And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and as a family they remained there. In the days when the judges ruled, this is the era between Israel's conquest of the promised land and the beginning of the monarchy with Saul, the judges were military chieftains. They, they kind of held things together before a king came on the scene. They defended Israel against her enemies. They administered justice among the tribes in Israel. But it was also an era of tremendous moral chaos and sin. It was a time of violence. It was a time of political and civil unrest. It was a time of sexual and social disintegration. A time of tremendous immorality. Of self-serving independence. People did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king to follow. There was no standard that was being followed. And this nation was in moral dry rot. That is the scene we need to see. The situation, the setting we need to read the book of Ruth in as we look at it. It was a time here, more specifically in the life of this family, of famine. As we look at the Old Covenant and God's relationship with Israel, there was a promise that there would be fertility in the land if Israel would walk with God. This was one of the provisions of that covenant. If you will do what is right, I will prosper you and I will make sure that it rains, which was utterly essential, of course, in their place. Where there was sin and where there was a breaking of the covenant by God's people, He would send famine. And so in some sense here, Israel is experiencing the punishment of God for her sin. How does Elimelech respond? Rather than responding to God's discipline through repentance, rather than calling his fellow Israelites to turn back to God and setting the example there in the promised land, he runs. He seeks to escape. He leaves his home in Bethlehem in the territory of Judah. We're introduced to the family here in verse 2. As we look at Bethlehem there on the map, just at the uh, north to the west of the north end of the Dead Sea, just south, about five or six miles from Jerusalem. This is where they live. And as we're introduced to the family, we meet Elimelech, the husband, and Naomi, his wife, and God blesses this couple with two sons, Chilion and Malon. They are Ephrathites, which is an ancient term for Bethlehem, indicating that their family had lived here for generations. Everyone would have known them, and they would have prospered here for a long time as a family being called Ephrathites. Bethlehem, the name actually means house of bread in the Hebrew. So the house of bread has become a prison of hunger and privation. This did not meet Elimelech's expectations. And he decides to seek bounty in an even more godless land, the land of Moab. As if God could not produce rain. As if God could not deal with the situation. He leaves and tries to find greener pastures in Moab. We don't know the route that was taken very likely over the north end of the Dead Sea. But in any event, they come to Moab a journey of approximately 50 miles or so. 
As we come to Moab, they are entering into the land of a despised people. The Israelites and the Moabites, they had a long and bad history. And we don't have time to go into that, but there were many atrocities on the part of the Moabites against the Israelites, and there was a lot of difficult negotiations between the two nations. Now at this point, there seems to be not a particular problem. 200 years ago, Moabite King Eglon had come into Israel and had dominated the Israelites, but that was a bit of old history by this point. And there seems to be at least some reception of individuals going back and forth. What is more significant is that the Moabites worshipped Chemosh. This was a fertility god. And as a fertility god, worship involved ritual prostitution. People would be involved in sexual acts out in the sight of the gods they believed to try to stimulate the gods to copulate like they were and thus to produce fertility. It was a wicked and sensual worship. Along with this, there were at least at seasons child sacrifice to Chemosh. Children would be laid on an altar and slaughtered. This was the worship. This was the land into which Elimelech is leading his family. As Ferguson writes, everything about Moab spelled alienation from God and His promises. This is the man's plan. As this couple and this family of four journey to Moab, the things did not go according to plan here either. And in Moab they experienced great emptiness. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These, verse 4, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. So Elimelech dies, Naomi is left as a widow, but she has her two sons who take wives there in Moab, Moabite women. This word translated took here usually has a negative connotation in the Old Testament and indicates that Naomi's sons married pagan Moabites, not proselytes. That is not Moabites who had become Israelites, but Moabites who remained in their paganism. Now there's definitely development that we'll see indicated here, at least on the part of Ruth, but there's some indication here that this too was not a good decision. This part of the story in marrying these two women also does not work according to plan. First of all, both couples will be fertile. They will not produce a child. And then we read verse 5, further tragedy. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi comes with three men, and in that day, the men made the money. They provided for the clan, for the family. It was utterly essential that you have men in your life that will provide for you. The women worked very hard, but they were not the ones that produced the wealth, and they had to be cared for within the larger family. She comes now, and all of the men in her life are gone. And the men, undoubtedly, at a very young age. Tsunamis make headlines because they trouble the lives of so many people and they are so filled with tragedy. But the ordeal Naomi and her daughters-in-law suffered would never make the evening news. But you know, they suffered just as much as any family in trial. A tsunami had ripped through their personal lives. 
with devastating force. It had left them in grief and destitution. In a day when income was generated by the men, it was difficult to know how they would live from this place. They were on the brink of disaster. Naomi had fled the lion of hunger in Bethlehem. She had run into the teeth of death in Moab. Nothing was working according to expectation. Nothing. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. There are two key words I'd like us to focus on in verse 6. The first is that word return. We are going to see that word repeated throughout the remainder of this chapter. It becomes a key word. It's not always translated return in our English translations. Though it's put differently, this word repeats itself. It might be translated turn back or something like that. But it's the idea of turning. And it is the word that is used most often in the Old Testament of repentance. This is not repentance as such, but again, remember that as this, as this narrative plays itself out, there's subtle messages that are woven throughout the text. And so this turning back to Palestine, turning back to the promised land, has a theological theme that is meant to be highlighted as this word is repeated throughout. She returns there. In a sense... She repents. Though the word is used simply of what is happening physically, there is a sense in which there is a turning back to the covenant-keeping God in the land. The second word I'd like you to focus on is the word food. I'm sorry, I said two words. There's three words. The second is visited. Visited. This word speaks of God's covenant loyal love. God has visited His people again. God has come to Israel's aid, not because Israel deserves it, but because that's who God is. In His mercy, in His loving kindness, He has visited Israel again. Now food is being produced. It's a new day. And He's providing food. That's the third word. That word is actually the word bread. And so there's a play on words here with Bethlehem, the house of bread. As Block captures it well, the house of bread was being restocked. God was moving in Israel. The covenant-keeping God was stirred again because of His innate love and loyalty to His people. He was moving again there. And Naomi says, I'm going to return. I'm going to return to the land of promise and to walk with God in at least that sense. But bereft of her husband and sons, she makes this plan. And so, verse 7, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. They're going to go with her. Perhaps culturally expected that they would do that. But in any event, they don't despise her and take this as an opportunity to leave her alone I think we must also understand that as they come to this place, they are destitute. Circumstances have intertwined themselves in this strange twist of providence. And they see no other course than simply to continue on together as three women striving to live. 
to return to the land of Judah. It refers specifically to Naomi, but she brings her two daughters-in-law with her. Verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Apparently they're on their way, they set out on the journey, and then she thinks of this. And with loving kindness and mercies to them, she says, go back to your mother's house. That phrase would have typically been used to refer to a woman that needed to go to a place where she would find marriage, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, she says. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. May the Lord deal kindly. Yahweh, not Chemosh, the God of Israel, may He watch over you in Moab and deal kindly with you. That phrase, to deal kindly, translates the Hebrew word hesed. It's this word that speaks of God's covenant-keeping love and merciful kindness. But it's in the very heart and nature of God to be loyal to His people. May God be loyal to you. It's interesting here. These are pagans. They worship Chemosh. Culturally, that's their God. But she says, you know, even in your life as you related to my sons, in the common grace of God, we'll fill in some of the blanks for her, she didn't say it that way, but in the common grace of God, you showed that kind of loyalty to my sons. That kindness, that steadfastness, that loyal love of covenant in your marriage. Chilion and Malon, we don't know precisely what the words mean, the names mean, but they both seem to point to weakness and illness and complaint. I think it's very possible, we know they die very young, that these were sickly men who were cared for by these two women. And, and Naomi appreciates that and respects that. And she looks at these two women, there, it's clearly respect for one another and appreciation for one another. And she says, in loyalty to them, Go back to your homes. They had almost no hope of marriage in Israel. They would forever be the despised Moabites in Bethlehem, it would seem. And she does what is gracious and kindly. Going on this long journey, she'll go without them. They need to return home. The young women object. They say, verse 10, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back. There's the word again. Shuv. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Go back. Now, I don't think that Naomi is saying you are not going to get a husband from me, though Clearly that is what she's saying, but I think she's saying much more. Naomi probably refers here to the Mosaic law that stipulated that when a man died, 
his brother was to marry that widow and raise up memory to his brother. Now that is very odd to us, and we don't even want to think about the social implications of that, but Deuteronomy 25 laid that out in a very different day, a very different setting, but it really was an evidence of steadfast, loyal love, of covenant-keeping love for the dead. It was loving and self-sacrificing for a man to marry a widow like this and to raise up children that would inherit in the name of his brother. Don't return to Bethlehem with me. I am not going to produce children that you could marry. You would be past childbearing age if you waited for that. And no one's going to give you, no husband is going to take you in. It's foolish to come back with me. My life is bitter. Go back and try to find hope in your land. Now just think of the reality of this settling in. These women have suffered much together. Three men they shared together in their family. They're all buried in Moab. They're behind them as they look back to the promised land. And all of it certainly overwhelms these two young women. For verse 14 says that then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. They wept again. Why did it have to turn out this way? Why were their husbands taken from them so soon? Why must they now make this hard decision? They apparently want to live with Naomi. They don't despise her as their mother-in-law, but now she's heading back to her homeland. She has no one to care for her here. Why is this decision before them? To go back to what they know means to leave this woman that they love, and they weep bitterly. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, we find here, clings to her The word means to be glued to her. That is, her heart is bound up with Naomi's, her mother-in-law. And she said, Naomi that is, says to Ruth, verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back, there's the word again, to return to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go with her. Go back to your people. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. So think of where Ruth is at this place. To the east. The security of her extended family. The familiarity of her homeland. The gods she had grown up worshiping. The best chance in this world that she would find another husband and be able to give birth to a child. In the other direction, to the west, uncertainty. Radical change. A culture so different from her own in a different God. But Ruth makes the hard decision. And she responds to her mother-in-law with hesed. That is, with loyal, loving kindness. And this marks both the pinnacle and the turning point of this chapter. Her speech. Don't send me back, she says, verse 16. But we read here now one of the most beautiful poems of the Old Testament Scriptures. She says, Do not urge me to go back, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, 
I will lodge. Your people shall be My people, and your God My God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This poem pulsates with chords of covenantal love. Of one heart joined to another. Of one taking on the responsibility to be loyal to this individual. To Naomi. Many wedding ceremonies include these words. I've been asked from time to time, is this who we use these words? They're really taken out of context. It's the words of a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. And here we have a husband and wife saying these same words to one another in a marriage. Isn't that really taking it out of context? Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. It is taking it out of context for many people who use it who have no idea who really said those words and what the context was. But I think actually these words are ideal for the covenant between a husband and a wife. Not because they're taken directly in context from the Scriptures, but because they speak to this kind of relationship. The loving kindness, the loyal covenantal love between a man and a wife as they speak their vows of fidelity to one another for life. That's what Ruth is doing here. Ruth does not have to do this. But she decides here that her relationship with Naomi will become permanent. She will love her to the end of her days. And in that sense, I think they're very fitting words to people entering into covenant with one another. So here Ruth stands, not only at the crossroads between Moab and Israel, she stands here at the crossroads between Chemosh and Yahweh. Between her pagan homeland and the people of God. At this critical moment, Ruth turns back on the best chance of finding refuge under the wings of a husband, and she finds refuge under the wings of Yahweh. If you had been there with Naomi and Ruth, the scene would have been heavy with the heartache and near desperation these women were experiencing together. I think as Ruth makes this decision, there's not this beautiful symphonic music in the background as the birds chirp and everything is so wonderful, we kind of think of they're such beautiful words. But they're words that are wrenched out of a situation of great heartache and trial. It's like one last thing that she will do is give herself in love to this woman. Even though there's no hope in it, it wouldn't seem. But as we look back from our perspective, we see a woman put her trust in the covenant-keeping God and simultaneously reflect that very kind of love for Naomi. And there is beauty in this harsh and difficult situation. Ruth sets her face like a flint toward Bethlehem, determining by the grace of God to remain loyal to this woman for life, and more importantly, loyal to her people and to her God. Rather than focus on expectations and grow bitter, Rather than return to her pagan world where things might get back to her dreams, her loyalty is fixed on God and His people. Now, Ruth does not know it, but with this decision, she essentially picks up her cross and takes a one-way journey into God's covenant. 
echoes of Luke chapter 9 and verse 24. If anyone will come after Me, Jesus says, let him take up his cross and follow Me. It's a one-way trip in following Christ. So here, Ruth reflects that very decision, that very orientation, and putting others ahead of herself, echoing Philippians 2, she in the end received much more than she ever left behind, Luke chapter 18. We see the brush strokes of the covenant-keeping God as He draws to Himself His people and blesses them. Unbeknownst to these two women, Ruth's decision was a colossal one. Her decision to go to Bethlehem, her decision to come under the wing of Yahweh changed the world. She had no idea in that moment that there was something that was being birthed in her heart to do what was right, and we are here today because of her decision. More on that in a moment, but let's look first at this decision It really speaks to us in our time. Things have changed in that we have much more information. But this turn from the idols of this world to serve the living and true God is a world that we face as well. A decision that we face. Have you come to a turning place in your life where you took refuge in God? Perhaps you cannot define the very moment, but you have a sense as the story of your life has played out that there was a place where you turned your back on the gods of this world and on your own ways and your own expectations and dreams in your own self-dependence to embrace the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This is the life of repentance. To come to this place where we turn our back on this world, and we repent receiving Christ. The rest that we have on this side of the cross is the rest and forgiveness of sin through Christ's death on the cross. The rest that we receive is hope and victory over death through Christ's resurrection power. It was very murky for Ruth. It was simply coming under the wing of this Yahweh. For us, the picture has become so much clearer. It is turning from this world in repentance to trust in Christ as Savior, to receive His forgiveness, to identify with His people. And in fact, that is the privilege that is ours as we come to find our rest in Christ crucified and risen. We come into the context of a family of God. We identify with that family. We covenant with that family to walk with them in loyalty and in love to Christ because He has so won us. So Orpah leaves, but Ruth remains and the two journey back from Moab to Judah. They return in bitterness, we find in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? That is, they come unexpectedly. The town is abuzz. Is this Naomi? They may not be able to identify her. Or it just may be the question, can this possibly be? Why has she come back now? Verse 20, but she says to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. Call me Mara which means bitter one. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
keep the word play, it might be something like, call me Mara, for God has chosen to mar me. Verse 21, she says, I went away full. She left with a husband and two sons, and the Lord has brought me back empty. There's that word return again. To bring back. is that Hebrew word shuv, to return. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant one when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? God has brought calamity upon me. A Hebrew word commonly used for bad or evil and as here to be taken as calamity or disaster. Perhaps Naomi realizes it. Perhaps she does not. But in putting it this way, this is her hope. She does not look to the circumstances of her life as the result of bad luck. But she sees a God of providence. The One who rules the universe. It's not fate. It's not chance. Ultimately, it's not Satan. She knows this calamity has been permitted by the Almighty God. He has dealt with me very bitterly, she says honestly. It is speech that reflects belief in the providence of God. God is not only behind our successes, He is behind our suffering as well, working in it and working through it. And she acknowledges that. And so she returns, our key word again. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned, the same word, Shuv, from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, right about this time of year, late March, early April. And the house of bread was again making bread. The winter of their experience was about to give way to the spring of God's covenantal love in their experience. But as they stand here, they see none of this. Naomi's life had not gone according to plan. So many of her expectations had been shattered. She had suffered the bitter providence of God and returned home a spent and struggling woman. So all we see come back to Bethlehem are these embittered women. I don't know that that's a case in the sense of attitude, but in the case of their experience, they have faced, they have drunk deeply from the bitter cup of God's providence. And at this moment, there's no king in Israel. At this moment, the people of God are mired in moral depravity and idolatry. It's a dark picture. It's a difficult day. But out of this depravity emerges here a beautiful story of covenantal love. We hear the words of Ruth spoken to Naomi and we know that they're gold. There's something pure in those words and in that commitment. It's not because Ruth is so great. It's because Ruth is reflecting the nature of God who is a God of loving kindness and of covenantal love. He will show this to be the case in the days ahead. This story of Ruth subtly assures us that the invisible hand of God is working out His redemptive purposes and His covenant loyalty is being worked out in these very events. God is there. He loves His people. And He's working to redeem them. Where Ruth sees nothing but death and infertility. 
The God she has come to trust is working through her to seat a king on Israel's throne and ultimately to produce a Messiah who will rule over the earth with righteousness from David's throne. There is no king. There is moral depravity. He is working through Ruth to change that. Working through the tragedy that she faces to redeem His people. This plan had been going for a very long time. She's just one piece in the fabric of this plan. There will come one who will crush Satan's head, God says to Adam and Eve in the garden. God elects Abraham, calling him out of Mesopotamia, choosing him as the one through whom he will work out his saving purposes. There is Isaac, and there is Jacob, there are the children of Israel, and there is Judah who is defined as the one through whom kings will come. We just find ourselves at that place here before the monarchy. And we are working here to see the family of King David through whom will come ultimately the Messiah. Ruth, by coming to the promised land, will in the providence of God become the great-grandmother of King David. And she will be forever immortalized through eternity in the genealogy of Jesus Christ as the one through whom the ultimate king will come. She knows none of this. She simply knows is coming to terms with the covenant loyal love of God. And so we see in this narrative not random, meaningless twists of blind fate. Here we see the brushstrokes of God who works through us and in us in the midst of hard circumstances always to accomplish His saving purposes. Naomi flees famine. She ends up burying her her husband and her two sons. All is dark and bitter. But what God sees as she buries her men is a baby in Bethlehem's manger. A baby who would save His people from their sin. God is ever working working His redemptive purposes on a universal level. Here on a national level. And here on a personal level. For those that know the Bible, it's not difficult for us to realize that God works His saving purposes on a universal level. We see Him doing this Developing His saving plan. Coming ultimately to fruition in Jesus Christ and the implications that flow from there. But we do not so readily see His saving purposes then being worked out in the nitty-gritty of our lives where dreams are broken and shattered and where expectations are not met. Do we think there like a fatalist? Do we think there like an idolater? putting our expectations and our desires on a shelf and worshiping them and calling, whistling to God in prayer like our errand boy to give us what we want? Or do we realize that the knitting of our life with every stitch is part of the unbroken fabric of His sovereign purposes? You know, one of the practical evidences that we see this that we realize our life is integrated with the saving purposes of God is how we treat one another. 
You say, wait a minute, we, we, we switch gears here. <laughs> Where does that come from? When expectations of ease and safety are our focus, we live a self-centered life. But we need to abandon that focus for confidence that God is working His redemptive plan in all that comes to pass. We need to come to see ourselves as the recipients of the loving kindness of a covenant-keeping God. And as we see that, one of the evidences that we see it is that we begin to treat others with covenant-keeping love. Because we're the recipients of such grace. Daniel Block in his commentary on Ruth says, the measure of a person's faith is not found in the miracles that one can wrest from the hand of God, nor in one's personal health and prosperity, but in demonstrating ethical character. Genuine piety is expressed primarily in devotion, sensitivity, grace, and kindness toward others, and openness to the working of God. Here it is where our lives become integrated with this grand cause of redemption. It's not all about my expectations and my dreams and how I think things ought to go, but it's part of locking into this greater purpose and coming to know the heart of this God of covenant love. We see in Ruth then such covenantal loyalty working itself out in the nitty-gritty of life by a woman who simply trusts God. The God who later works it all out on the cross. So I think if we get the cross, we will live a life of covenant love toward one another. It will be the outflow of our lives as we have entered into fellowship with this God of loving kindness. It will change the way that we as husbands relate to our wives. We will relate to them with kindness and with gentleness and with tenderness. We will relate to them with a loyalty that is willing to die for them because we are the recipients of such love from God. It will affect the way that wives relate to their husbands. There will be a loyalty there to not hurt them, to not cause them shame, to honor them, to support them, to strengthen them, to live with them until death parts us as a couple. This loyal love, if it's really seen in the wonder of God and His character, will show itself in the relationship between parents and children as they give parents give themselves in loyalty to their children and defend them and teach them and train them. And as children respond with obedience and reverence to their parents, it will show itself as siblings relate to one another as singles coming under the wing of Yahweh serve His purposes in loyal love to His people. It will show itself as we relate to each other as church members. As we come to know one another and give ourselves away to one another in loyalty and kindness and steadfastness, this love of God for us will change the way we relate to this world. It will change the way that we relate to the lost. Because a covenant-keeping God, a God of loyalty and grace, has called us to Himself, has given us life while we were yet His enemies. 
So our focus should not be on simply expectations and fleshly desires, but our focus should be on participation with the grander redemptive purposes of God as He works out those purposes in the small details of our lives that perhaps never make the headlines. We will learn then to see the narrative of our lives as an integral part of God's redemptive plan. And we will love others as an outflow of His love working itself out in that redemptive plan. By the grace of God, we will track back to God as Ruth does in this chapter. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how we thank You for what Christ has done. How we thank You for Your nature. That despite our sin, beyond anything that we could imagine, You treat us with steadfast, loyal love. We sin, we sin, and we sin again. We choose our own way. We worship that which we should not. And through repentance and forgiveness, we come back to a God who continues to have open arms. With loving, gentle kindness, You continue to receive us. You continue to invite us back. And we are awed. Father, I pray that with such covenantal love, we will choose to love one another as a church. Despite our differences, despite our struggles, despite our challenges that we face in the family of God, may we love one another this way to the end. And I thank You for the consistent demonstration of such love among this body of people. Continue to fan it into flame. I pray that our church would not be about friendship ultimately. That it would not be about meeting the expectations of church shoppers ultimately. I pray that it would be about covenantal love. A loyalty to one another that runs deeper than anything this world could define and thus highlights Your mercy to us in Christ. And I pray for anyone here who is not under the wing of Yahweh. Who has not come to rest in Your saving purposes in Christ. I pray that You'd turn them. That they would repent and turn their back on idols which are killing them to receive You as Savior and the Giver of eternal life. I pray that You will bring that dawning here today among us according to Your will. And in the name of our Savior we ask it. Amen.